Well, this is the third video in our Gospel of John series, wherein we are walking through the fourth gospel, verse by verse by verse. Uh, the first video was an introductory video, and then in the second video, we actually jumped into the text of Scripture, and we went through chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and we are going to pick up today in verse 6. And if you're wanting to know how this whole series works, basically, I am doing a bunch of research and doing a lot of just studying the Scripture and just sitting on it and praying about it and meditating on it and trying to read all the different scholars and pastors and all those different things to try to give you a series that is almost exhaustive on this gospel to give you the most important information that I hope will be useful and beneficial to you as you go out into the world, not only to edify your own personal walk with God, but also so that you can use it to point others to Him. And so that being said, these videos end up being pretty long, so I will not waste our time. I'm going to pray for us so that we can actually get to studying the Bible. Dear God, thank you so much for today. I pray that we will not take a single day for granted, but that we will recognize that every single day, every single breath, is a gift given by you by grace. So as we go into your word, let us recognize that also our ability to study your word, our ability to know you, is also an act of grace. And let us not take it for granted, but rather let us recognize that gracious love by which you made yourself known, and let us use that to draw nearer to you and fall more deeply in love with you. I pray that as we go into your scripture, your spirit will be present with us, both with me as I'm teaching and with everybody who hears this lesson. We thank you for your word, God. Let us not take it for granted, but let us approach it reverently and truthfully, seeking to know you above all things. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So John introduced us last week with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Having begun his story with the epic proclamation of the eternal, uncreated, self-existent word that was God, John now zooms in to begin his story where the rest of the Gospels begin. He's going to introduce us to a man named John the Baptist. Having set up the cosmic stage, now John is setting the stage as best we can understand it in the context of human history. And so these are the words that we read. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. 
But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 13. The author has introduced us to the eternal, self-existent, uncreated word of God who is somehow distinct from God, yet the same as God. And now we go from the cosmic realm and we step into the world and we step into first century Palestine. And we are introduced to a man named John. As we mentioned in the past, the author John never refers to himself by name in the gospel. Apart from the four references to Peter's father, uh, one reference in chapter 1, and then three other references in chapter 21, every time we encounter the name John in the Gospel of John, it is actually referring to the character who in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is referred to as John the Baptist. Since the author's name is John, and he is the only other significant character named John in the life of Jesus, he doesn't have to distinguish between Johns. He is John, and then the other John would be John the Baptist, so he doesn't have to distinguish that because he's the one writing. And we're going to talk a lot more about John the Baptist over the coming weeks uh, because, as we're going to see, this is the story we're going to start off with. The reason why John is mentioning John the Baptist in the prologue is because that is going to be the first person to testify about Jesus. And so we're going to talk a lot about John the Baptist in the coming weeks. But for right now, there are, a few, uh, there are a few things that you need to know. Firstly, John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. He was the herald that came to pave the way for the coming of the Messiah. He was the one who stood there and told people the Messiah is coming. And whenever Jesus shows up, he is going to stand and point and say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The other thing that you need to know about John the Baptist is that he was a very, very, very popular man. In fact, even non-Christian sources mention the popularity of John the Baptist. Even outside the Bible, we have references to how popular John the Baptist was. The historian, the Jewish historian, Josephus, wrote this about John the Baptist in the first century. Right At the same time, like just very shortly afterwards, this is what the historian Josephus wrote. Now, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God, and that very justly as a punishment of what he did against John, that was called the Baptist. For Herod slew him, who was a good man, and commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as to righteousness towards one another and piety towards God, and so to come to baptism." For that the washing with water would be acceptable to him. If they made use of it, not in order to the putting away or the remission of some sins only, but only for the purification of the body, supposing still that the soul was thoroughly purified beforehand by righteousness. Now, when many others came in crowds about him, for they were very greatly moved or pleased by hearing his words, Herod, who feared lest... Um, who feared lest the great influence John had over the people might put it into his power and inclination to raise rebellion, for they seemed ready to do anything he should advise. 
thought it best by putting him to death to prevent any mischief he might cause and not bring himself into difficulties by sparing a man who might make him repent of it when he, it would be too late. Accordingly, he was, um, he was sent a prisoner out of Herod's suspicious temper to Machaerus, uh, Machaerus, the castle I before mentioned, and was there put to death. Now the Jews had an opinion that the destruction of this army was sent as a punishment upon Herod and a mark of God's displeasure to him. So that's from Josephus's Antiquities of the Jews. And so even there, from a non-Christian source, we have the report that John the Baptist was a godly man, a righteous man, who encouraged people to be good to one another and encouraged people to have zeal and love for God. And that actually freaked out this guy named Herod, who we will hear about over the course of this gospel. His name's Herod Antipas. And it freaked out Herod a little bit because he was like, oh man, this guy has a lot of power. And right now he seems to be saying good things and doing good things and calling people to do great stuff. But people are willing to do whatever he says. And with power comes great responsibility. And so this was a constant thing that you see constantly showing up in first century Israel. They are afraid of uprisings, of rebellions. And so Herod puts John to death. And this is consistent with the testimony of Scripture, um, which actually gives a little more context as to why John was killed. But we will talk about that later. Right here we see even the historian Josephus talking about how John was called the Baptist, not because he went to the Baptist church down the street, but because he was known for his baptism, wherein he would call people to come into the water and he would immerse them into the Jordan River as a sign of their purification from sin. But then even Josephus clarifies that it wasn't that the baptism cleansed them, it was presupposed that saving faith, righteousness had been given to them prior to the baptism, and they were washed of it as a symbolic act. So even outside of the Bible, John the Baptist is a big deal. And so that's why each of the four Gospels finds it necessary to contextualize the ministry of Christ by detailing the ministry of John the Baptist who preceded him. Each of the four Gospels finds it necessary to start with John the Baptist. Matthew admittedly does start with a genealogy of Jesus and then talks about the birth of Jesus. But before getting into the actual ministry of Jesus, he starts with the ministry of John the Baptist. Mark, he just straight out starts with John the Baptist. The first 11 verses of Mark are dedicated to John the Baptist, and Mark even calls this the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, if you want to know the beginning of the gospel, you got to start with John the Baptist. Luke, he doesn't even start with the ministries of Jesus or John, nor does he even start with the birth of Jesus. Rather, Luke begins his gospel by starting with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist. And the gospel of John is no different. After having introduced Jesus as the eternal word, who has existed since before the beginning with God, he immediately cuts to John who is described quite simply as a man sent from God. The distinction here is very evident. Right? You have the eternal word, and then you have the man sent from God. Jesus is the word. He is God. John, he is a man. Jesus has eternally existed. John has just arrived. <laughs> 
Jesus is God. John was sent from God. Nevertheless, despite being nothing more than a man, John is of such importance in the story that apart from God and the Word, he is the first character mentioned in the narrative. I don't know if you've noticed yet, but we actually haven't even encountered the name Jesus yet in the Gospel of John. So far, we've only been introduced to Jesus as the Word. And it's not going to be for until a few more verses we'll get to in the next lesson that we're going to actually learn that his name is Jesus Christ. All right? Well, his name is Jesus and his title is Christ. But we're not even going to learn that yet. Before we even learn who the Word is, we learn who the man is. There was a man who came from God, and his name was John. And having been sent from, John, uh, having been sent from God... This places John the Baptist in the same category as Moses and the prophets. And some people would go even beyond that to say that John the Baptist is the character that links the Old Testament to the New Testament. He's the last Old Testament prophet and the first New Testament Christian. He was sent from God to pave the way. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. So that raises the question, what exactly was he sent to do? Right? Because we haven't really gotten there yet, but we're about to get there. What was John the Baptist sent to do? Look to verses 7 and verse 8. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. So here we see exactly why John the Baptist is of such great importance to the author. We mentioned in the first video that the Gospel of John is a gospel of testimony that is concerned with eyewitnesses who perceive Jesus, who can testify to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. John the Baptist is the first of those witnesses. And not only is he the first of those witnesses, but he is the person who was sent from God specifically to be a witness. And so to the author John, John the Baptist is absolutely crucial because he is the linchpin that kicks off this whole story. John the Baptist came to testify, and the author John is very concerned with testimony. John's entire purpose in existing was to testify to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, to point people in darkness to the light. I really like how D.A. Carson sums up John's ministry. The purpose of John the Baptist's witness, though of course not its result, was so that through him all might believe. What he means by that is John came so that all might believe. Obviously, that isn't the result because there are a lot who don't believe. But the intention behind all of our ministries, hopefully, should be that all believe. Right? He goes on to say, Derivatively, because the Baptist witness has been bound up in all four canonical Gospels with the beginning of Jesus' ministry, like Abel, he still speaks even though he is dead. All who have ever come to faith are indirectly dependent on his opening proclamation of the identity and saving purpose of Jesus Messiah. The fact that you are listening to this lesson right now, the fact that I am standing in this church teaching this lesson right now, owes a lot to John the Baptist. 
He was the herald who got everybody's attention so that whenever Jesus walked down to meet him in the Jordan River, there was a big crowd in front of which John could say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. We owe that to John. And that's why he's so significant, because he is the one who successfully paved the way for the Messiah and brought the Messiah into the limelight. However, because of John's popularity, factions arose that were more devoted to him than they were to the Messiah himself. And we're going to talk a lot about that when we get to John chapter 3. And we actually encounter a group which may have been one of those factions in Acts chapter 19. The point being that sometimes popularity has its downsides. And even though John was aware of the fact that he was meant to point people towards the Messiah, and though that was his constant testimony, some people weren't focused on that. They heard what he said, it went in through one ear and out the other, and they focused more on him than on the person they were pointing, and they focused more on him than on the person he was pointing them to. And that's why John has to specify here. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came to bear witness about the light, He himself was not the light. He came only to bear witness about the light. At the time when John was writing this gospel, these followers of John the Baptist were still around, and so John needed to clarify. John the Baptist is not the light that came into the world, that shines in the darkness. He's not that light. He came to bear witness about the light. You see, he wants to make it absolutely clear that John the Baptist is inferior to Jesus. He's not saying that John the Baptist is a bad guy. Rather, we are going to see that John the Baptist is an amazing person, but he's inferior to Jesus Christ. If Jesus was the sun, then John the Baptist was the ray of light that takes the sun's message to the world. If Jesus was the light itself, then John was the lamp that makes the light known. And John recognized this. I just quoted it a second ago. I'll quote it again now. Just in the first three chapters of the Gospel of John, we have John saying things like these. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And then, one of my absolute favorite verses in all Scripture, John says this about Jesus. He must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist recognized that he was not the light but he came to bear witness about the light. He was so humble, such an amazing person. And as we go through the Gospel of John, we are going to see that John the Baptist's ministry is a good example of how we should also strive to live our lives. 
John knew that his purpose was simply to prepare the way for the Messiah, and he was content with that and wasn't ever striving for more. Whenever people stopped following him and started following Jesus, he said, awesome. He must increase. I must decrease. He existed to exalt not himself, but Christ. His entire purpose for existing was to testify. That is to point people towards the truth. He came into the world to point people towards the truth. That was his role. He was sent from God. Why was he sent from God? To testify. To bear witness. That's why he's so crucial in this gospel. Because this gospel wants you to realize that the things we say about Jesus are not mere fiction. They're not just fables. They're not fairy tales. They are truth. And there is life and light in that truth. And John is the one who was sent to confirm that, to bear witness to that. He lived to direct people to the light, which testifies how blind the world truly is. But make no mistake, John was not the light. As we read in verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Here John is speaking of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, of God taking on flesh, of the light making himself seen. And notice the distinctions we have here between Jesus and John. Where John the Baptist came into the world, the word was coming into the world. Where John had arrived into existence, the word was merely arriving on the scene. The text reads like the introduction to some epic, to an epic story. The author, John, he is wanting us to recognize that the story that is about to unfold is the climax of human history. Right? That's why he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he's using all this fanciful and this poetic and flowery language because he wants us to feel that epic emotion rumbling inside of us so that whenever we actually see Jesus show up and whenever John looks and says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we should get chills because we are getting to encounter God in the flesh. That's why John sets it up this way. He wants it to read like an epic. He wants you to get excited about it. And it's working. I hope. I hope it gets you excited about it. By the time we get through the prologue, the author will have prepared us for the most epic story of all time. Right now, he's laying the themes. He's establishing the main characters. And whenever we get to meet them, it's going to be great. But I want you to also notice the implications of this verse, right? The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Notice the implications of that. If the light is coming into the world, that would suggest that the world in and of itself is shrouded in darkness. The significance of light coming into the world is that the light does not belong to the world. If John is saying the true light was coming into the world, that means that all the lights that were already in the world were false lights. 
They were false advertisements. Really, the whole world is shrouded in darkness, and finally the true, the real, the full, the absolute light is coming. And whenever he arrives, you're going to realize how dark it's truly been. We talked about this in the last lesson. Here we are walking around thinking that we're living in a world that's bright as day. But whenever Jesus shows up and we see what true light looks like, we realize that we have been walking in the daytime when it's really as dark as night. And Jesus is going to show up and he's going to be like a bright star in the nighttime sky. And we're going to realize that we had a very false understanding of what true light is, what true righteousness is, what true godliness is, what true obedience is. God is going to make himself man. And whenever the God-man Jesus Christ shows up, we are going to finally see what it means to be righteous and to dwell in the light. But a question arises from this. Because, like we said, John is saying here, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He says that this light gives light to everyone. The question is, how? In what way does Jesus, in what way does the word coming, or in what way does the word, the light, how does he give light to everyone? What does John mean by that? And there's four main interpretations of that. The first one would just be general revelation. The idea that God has made himself known to everyone so that all are without excuse. This would be the idea that everybody has received the illumination, you could say, from the light, right? Everybody has received a certain level of illumination just by nature. You can look into nature and you can know that God exists. And if the word is the creative force behind all things, then in a way, he has given light to everyone. Because he has left everybody without excuse for believing that God exists. That doesn't mean that they can necessarily get saved just by looking at nature, but it means that they're without excuse for not seeking God out. So in a way, it could be that. It could just be the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is the light that made himself known in nature so that every single man can look and know there is a God. Some other people would say that this is actually just speaking revelation to all peoples. That whenever it's saying that he gives light to every man, this is not necessarily everyone without exception, but rather it's everyone without distinction. And what I mean by that is that it's not saying every single person, it's saying more so every single people group, I guess. Right? So he made it known to all peoples, to every man. Whenever Jesus came, he was not only sharing light with just the Jews, but to the Jews and to the Gentiles, to male and female, to free and slave. Right? He's, the, the light is for every man. That's how some people might take that. The third one, and this is probably the least likely of the options, is the potential revelation interpretation, which would say that whenever it says that Jesus is giving light to every man, it's more so saying that there is the potential of receiving light for every person. Uh, And that might have been confusing how I worded that. So let me give you a scenario. Say that you're in a small town, and there's only one church, and there's just one pastor of that church. 
regardless of whether or not everybody goes to that church, by definition, that one pastor would be everyone's pastor because he is the only one there, right? Like they have no other options. So he is everyone's pastor, even if some don't come to him. So in the same way, some people would say that whenever John says the light gives light to everyone, it's saying that Jesus is the one true light, and if anybody wants light, they have to go to him. But it's just like a potential reality. Some people won't do it, but if they choose to seek out light, they have to go to him. And that is a true statement theologically. I just don't know if that's what John is saying here. That's probably the least likely interpretation because that's more a forced interpretation based off of other teachings in Scripture. And then the fourth interpretation would be that this is revelation that demands a verdict. That Christ's mere existence forces people into making a decision. Are they, going, are they with him or are they against him? He gives the light to all people. They must choose whether or not to receive it. Right, so this is the idea that whenever Jesus came into the world, now, it's, now we're speaking actually of the incarnation, right? The true light was coming into the world. Whenever Jesus showed up, he gave light to everyone. So all the people dwelling in darkness now had to face the light, right? It's not saying that they received him. It's just saying that he gave light to them. They might have wanted to stay hidden in the darkness, right? They wanted to still live in their sin, but he's cast the light on them And now they have to make a decision. Are they going to receive him or reject him? And I don't know necessarily which one of those is the proper interpretation. It really, honestly, John probably could have meant all four of them. Or he could have meant only one. Or maybe we're just getting that wrong. Um, But really the context to me would seem to suggest the fourth one. Because what we're going to get into soon is the rejection of Jesus Christ. But really, honestly, it could be a mix of all four because technically all four are true. Jesus has revealed himself in nature. God has revealed himself in nature to where everybody is without excuse. At the same time, he's revealed himself to all peoples so that Jew, Gentile, free, slave, male, female, everybody can come to Christ. He's also revealed himself in such a way that he is the only way. He is, if you want life, if you want light, if you want salvation, you have to go through him. And then His mere existence, his mere stepping into the world has forced us into making a choice. So all four are accurate interpretations, so whichever one you take is fine. Um, But to me, in the context, the fourth one seems to make the most sense because of where John is leading us. What we know for certain, though, is that whenever he is referencing light, he is not referencing it in a salvatory or soteriological manner. And I just used a really big word, but what I mean is that whenever he says that the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, he is not saying that every person gets saved. And the reason we know that is because if we just read to the next verse, we will see that that's not the case. Because people are going to be rejecting him. And as we go throughout the Gospel of John, we are going to see that the majority of people actually reject Jesus. Uh, So he's not saying that by coming into the world, everybody gets saved. So whenever he says light and receiving light, giving light, he's not talking about them getting saved. He's talking about illumination, right? He's forcing people into making a decision. He is showing them something that they had not previously seen, something like that. He's not saying that they become the light, right? Like Jesus says, you are the light of the world. 
that's, speaking, that's spoken to people who are saved when they are the light as he is the light. Right here, it's saying he's giving light as in he's calling people out and displaying his light before all people. So, let's move on to verse 10. Because this is going to get into some heart-wrenching stuff. So we just read that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And now we read, he was in the world. And the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. Apart from the verse that follows... This, in my opinion, is one of the most tragic verses in all of Scripture. The word is described as coming into the world that he created, yet that world rejects him. Consider this. No one would exist without God. Nothing would exist without God. There would be no history if there was no God, and there would be no world if there was no God. Yet when God came into the world, the world did not know him. The God who made everything came to that which he created, yet they did not recognize him. You can look at nature and you can pick up on character qualities of God. You can see that he's a God of order. You can see that he's a good God. You can see his power. You can see his patience with us, a sinful people. You can learn all these things just from looking at creation. Yet whenever the God of the universe came and stepped into the creation, we didn't recognize him we all have his seal upon us we were all created in his image yet when the one whose image we bear stood before us we didn't recognize him the question then is why why didn't we recognize him and what john is doing here is he is establishing a theme that will carry us through not only this gospel, but it actually permeates all four of the gospels. The rejection of Jesus Christ. The creation has become so estranged from their creator that when he stands right before them, they don't even recognize him. The distance between God and man has become so vast and the chasm has grown so large due to the extremities of our sin that whenever the good and holy and perfect God shows up, we don't even recognize him. People have become so blinded and lost in the darkness that even when the light stands before their very eyes, they can't see it. Do you know how blind you have to be to not see the light when it's right in front of your eyes? If the light is right here and you can't see it, you are so blind. The reason we are lost in darkness isn't because we've turned the lights off. It's because our eyes have been blinded to the light and we can't even see it. The true light which gives light to all mankind, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. 
yet the world did not know him. That is heartbreaking. (laughs) If that weren't bad, if verse 10 weren't heartbreaking enough, we get to verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Not only did the creation not recognize the creator, but God's own people did not receive him. Here John is turning from the whole creation and he's pinpointing a specific group of people that God has revealed himself to. He is looking to the Jewish people, to the people of Israel. And the response should be so shocking to us. It should jar us. It should shake us up. And it should break our hearts. The Jewish people were the people of God yet they will not receive God. They should have known the character of God best, yet when God stands before them, they don't recognize Him. The entire Old Testament consists of God's revelation to the people of Israel, yet when God's greatest revelation shows up, they reject it and don't recognize it for what it is. The Jewish people were called to be distinct from the world, yet their reaction to God in the flesh is exactly like that of the world, and they are not distinct at all. In fact, I would say the reaction is even worse. And the reason why I say that is because the Jews had been waiting for millennia for the Messiah to come, yet when the Messiah, their king, finally shows up, they kill him. That's the response. These are the people who should have known whenever the Messiah showed up, they should have said, that's him. But instead, they rejected him. They did not receive him. And sadly, this has been the consistent theme of all Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament alike. Only days after being freed from Egypt, the Israelites stiffened their necks and started complaining against God. While Moses was still up on Mount Sinai, receiving the law, the Ten Commandments from God, they crafted a golden calf and started worshiping it and turned to idolatry. And worse than that, they even called the calf Yahweh. They created this image and started worshiping it as God. After having been delivered into the promised land, the Israelites complained that they desired a God, they desired a king like the surrounding nations, right? So they are delivered into the promised land by God who desired to be their king, yet whenever they get there, they say, we want to be like the other nations and have a king. And God said, I called you to be holy, to be distinct, yet they still sought something else. They desired to be like everyone else. And after having been granted a king despite their stubbornness, the people of Israel turned to idolatry and away from the law that God had given them. Right? So God gave them this beautiful law to point them to him and to demonstrate that they could not fulfill righteousness. And he gave them a king despite their stubborn hearts, yet those kings led them into idolatry and led them away from him. And they abandoned the law. And eventually, God sent his prophets to warn them. And he said, if you keep breaking my law, I'm going to send you into captivity. I'm going to discipline you. 
I'm going to do this if you keep rejecting me. Stop rejecting me. And he sent prophet after prophet after prophet. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Micah, Jonah, all these people, they were sent to the people of Israel to warn them and say, stop rejecting God. And eventually, despite the warning of the prophets, the Israelites continued in the rebellion to such a point that God sent them into exile so that Isaiah in chapter 65 can summarize the position of the Israelite people like this. This is God speaking. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. Can you hear the heartbreak of God in this statement. He is looking at his people and they are rejecting him. And so he sends them into exile to discipline them. And the really cool thing is that when they come back from exile, they get super passionate about the law. And they're like, you know what? We are not going to sin. We're going to stop sinning. We are going to turn from our sin and we're going to follow God. And they get serious about the law. And then 400 years pass between the Old Testament and New Testament. And what happens? is that they get so serious about the law that they forget about the God who wrote the law. And in their zeal to not sin, they actually heap sin upon themselves by their self-righteousness. And they actually make the law stricter. And they become so focused on their personal righteousness that they fail to realize that righteousness is found only in God. And so even though they turned back to God and became more strict and actually turned away from idolatry and away from abandoning the law, and they started worshiping the one true God and following the law, despite that, John tells us here that they did not learn their lesson. Because the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The people of God have received the greatest revelation so far. This goes beyond the Torah. This goes beyond the prophets. This goes beyond anything that they had received thus far. This was God in the flesh. What do they do? They reject him. They accuse him. They abuse him. And they murder him. If you feel heartbroken by this, you should be. And John wants you to be heartbroken by this. As we read this gospel, our hearts should break because God is coming to his people and they're rejecting him. It's heartbreaking stuff. And if you aren't heartbroken, read it again. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. The God of the Jews came to the Jews, yet they rejected him. The Savior came to his own, yet they rejected his salvation. The King came to his people, yet they killed him. Imagine that as a youth, you were a rebellious and troublesome child who were just, you just constantly gave everybody trouble. You made life miserable for your parents. You did all this stuff, but you know what? You had that one parent 
who is just always so good to you, so kind to you, so gracious to you. You could sin against them and do the worst possible things to them, yet they would constantly be nice to you and shower you with love and provide for you and forgive you and welcome you back into the family even whenever you abandon them. You were a prodigal son. You were a child just running away, and yet this parent always welcomed you back. And yes, they hated your sin, but the moment you repented and came back to them, they would welcome you with open arms. And now imagine, one Christmas, this loving parent is coming to visit you, and they bring with them this gift that goes beyond ex- like explanation. It, it, it defies description. It is beyond any expectation you could ever have. They come to They come to visit you on Christmas, and they bring this amazing gift to give you, yet whenever they come and knock at your door, you murder them in cold blood. That's what's being said here. He came to his own, yet his own did not receive him. If you aren't heartbroken by this, you should because we're not talking about a good parent and a rebellious child. We are talking about the God of the universe and his chosen people. This is heartbreaking stuff. Yet amidst all this heartbreak, John reassures us that not everybody rejected the word. After all, this is called a gospel, and the gospel is a word that means good news. And so it doesn't end with bad news. Yes, he comes to the world, and the world does not recognize him. And he comes to that which was his own, and they do not receive him. But there is good news, and we see it in verses 12 and 13. Because we read, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. If you don't get chills at that, oh my gosh. While the majority of people reject the word, there are those who do not. There are those who do receive him, and what they receive from him is something that stretches beyond our wildest dreams. They become children of God. But what does it mean to receive him? That's an important question, right? What does it mean to receive him? If we want to become children of God, if we want to know him, what do we have to do? How do you receive him? What do I need to do? Do I need to like go like sell all my stuff? Do I need to just obey the law? What do I need to do? How do I receive the word? How do I not respond to him in the heartbreaking manner that the world and that his people did? What do I need to do to be saved? John answers that here. To receive the word is to believe in his name. They're synonymous. To those who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's to believe in Jesus Christ as simple as that. Yet what does it mean to believe in his name? Well, this is one of the primary questions of the Gospel of John. And so as we work through the Gospel, we are going to be wrestling through what that actually means. Because John is going to, once again, give us a contrast between genuine belief and superficial belief. And so we are going to see some people who they, they don't really believe. They think they believe, but they don't actually believe. That is superficial belief, 
right? They're like, oh yeah, I think Jesus is a cool guy. He seems, yeah, he's, he does some pretty cool miracles, stuff like that. And then we're going to see some people who, man, they are head over heels. They're saying, come and see this man. Come and see him for yourself. You need to see this Jesus guy. And that's going to be genuine belief. And there's going to be some people who just flat out reject him. But as we go through this gospel, we're going to be wrestling through the idea of what is genuine belief? And uh, just to quote D.A. Carson again, I, I know I already quoted him earlier, but his commentary on John is probably the best one I've come across so far. And uh, D.A. Carson says this about what it means to believe in his name, right? Talking about the in his name part. The name is more than a label. It is the character of the person or even the person himself. At its best, such faith yields allegiance to the word, trusts him completely, acknowledges his claims, and confesses him with gratitude. That is what it means to receive him. So he's just pointing out that a lot of the times we talk about the name of Jesus and we think that we're just talking about the two-syllable word Jesus. That's not what's being said here. Whenever you say believe in his name, it's talking about more than just the physical name. It's talking about who this person is, what they do, what they stand for. Whenever you hear his name, what are the thoughts that come to your mind? In the Song of Solomon, that's what makes the woman fall in love with the guy. She says that his name is like oil poured out. It's the idea that whenever, people, whenever you hear this guy's name, you think about how amazing he is and what he does and the things he stands for. And that's what makes this woman fall in love with this guy. His name. It's more than just the syllables. It's the things that come up when you hear those syllables. And so we have to believe in the name of Jesus. And we're going to be wrestling through that and what that means as we go through this gospel. John wants us to see the great reward that comes from such a simple response. We're not called to perform an action. We are called simply to respond. Right? That's the issue. The world and the people of God, they were all responding by their actions. And in doing so, they were rejecting him because God wasn't seeking that from them. He wanted their hearts. He came to them, and they were so focused on their own self-righteousness that they rejected him, yet he wanted them to realize that he alone was righteous, and they needed to respond to him so that they could attain his righteousness. That's how it works. He wants our hearts. He wants our response. He wants our belief. It's such a simple response. It doesn't take any work on our part, yet we receive something so profound from it. The roar we receive far exceeds the response that we make. All we do is respond in faith, yet we are adopted into the family of God. Yet what does it mean to be a child of God? It's a good question, right? John actually clarifies it here. What does it mean to be a child of God? Before we answer that question, another question uh, arises. Uh, aren't all people children of God? A lot of times you'll hear that. You'll hear people saying, oh, we're all God's kids. We're all, we're all the children of God. Well, according to John here, no, we are not. Um, because the only ones who have the right to become children of God are those who receive him and those who believe in his name. 
So if you don't receive him or believe in his name, it would follow that you are not a child of God and you don't have the right to be a child of God. And that's the testimony of Scripture. It might be harsh, and it might shake up a lot of the things that we say to people to encourage them, but the only people who are genuinely called children of God are the Christians. Everybody's created in the image of God. So everybody can reflect God, and they can have certain aspects that point towards Him. But only Christians, those who receive Christ, are children of God. But what does that mean? What does it mean to be a child of God? Well, John is actually going to teach us what it means to be a child of God by first clarifying what it does not mean. Right? So the first thing, he gives us three things. He says that you're not a child of God because you're born of blood. You're not a child of God because you're born of the will of the flesh. And you're not a child of God because you're born of the will of man. And then he's going to say, you're a child of God because you're born of God. But what does that mean? Let's tackle those. First thing, you're not born of blood. What John's saying there is that you're not born according to your genealogy, according to your bloodline. That's probably the most straightforward of all of them, right? And the reason he specifies this is because the Jews oftentimes claimed to be children of God purely because they were descended from the physical line of Abraham. They said, we have Abraham's blood running through our veins, and therefore we are the children of God. And it didn't matter how sinful they were, how much they rejected God. They were the people of God purely because they had Abraham's blood in them. They thought because of their Jewish descent, they were the people of God. John wants us to recognize that racial or ethnic heritage has nothing to do with being a child of God. And I think that that is a very important lesson for us to learn, even in the Christian church. Because a lot of times, we think that because we were raised in a Christian household, we are Christians. That's not how that works. So, the second thing that John specifies is that it's not born of blood, but it's also not born of the will of the flesh. Right? And what he means by this is desire. Right? Because what is it that leads to actual reproduction physically? Sexual desire. That's how it happens, right? Sexual desire leads to physical reproduction. That's what happens. But that's not how it works to be a child of God. No amount of sincerity or personal desire can earn man a proper spot before God. You can be sincere about your belief, and you can be so sincere in your desire for salvation, and you can be so sincere in your desire to reach God, but you can be sincerely wrong because you place that desire in the wrong God or in the wrong thing. And you can be sincere in your desire for satisfaction and your desire to be a better person. That doesn't justify you before God. Because children of God are not born out of the will of the flesh. You can't desire yourself into it. You have to be sincerely right. You have to place your sincerity in the right thing. Nowadays in our culture, people claim that so long as one is sincere in their faith, they have a right standing before God. And that is like the linchpin of postmodern thought. That's your truth, my truth, your truth, my truth. We all can be right before God because I feel this way. I am sincere. The Bible says that is wrong. 
And in the Gospel of John, we are going to have very clear statements where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Desire in and of itself is not good enough. You have to desire the right thing. And it has to be Jesus Christ. All because you desire a restored relationship with God doesn't mean you have one. Your faith must be in the right thing and no personal desire can override the standards God has established. Children are born out of the will of their parents' flesh, but not so with children of God. Personal desire itself does not lead to new birth. The third thing that John says does not make somebody a children of God is the will of man. Some translations will say a husband's will. And what he means by this is merit or works. Right? Whenever um, a man and a woman, they can come together and do the work necessary to produce a human baby. If you don't know what that work is, go look it up. I'm not going to go into detail here. But they can choose to do that. They can say, hey, it's time to have a baby, and they can put in the work necessary to have that baby. Not so with the children of God. Despite the claims of many religions, you cannot work your way back into a proper relationship with God. You can't do it. It's not possible. We are imperfect people. How can imperfection work its way back to perfection? It can't do that. Because to be perfect means to be without blemish. How can something evil work its way to be good again? Being that goodness is the absence of evil. And evil is lacking in goodness. So if you're lacking in goodness, how can you be good? How can wicked things become holy again? Because to be wicked is to be like everything else. Whereas to be holy is to be set apart. We can't work our way back. In order to be restored into a proper relationship with God, we have to to experience something that starts at God's end. And that is what John is saying. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus will go on to say in John chapter 3, verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. If you want to be born of God, you will have to be born again. Not physically, but spiritually. You will have to have the Holy Spirit come to dwell inside of you. And that is what we're going to see over the course of this gospel. In fact, all of those three negatives, you know, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, those three negatives are going to pop back up thematically in chapters 3 and 4. Because we're going to encounter this man named Nicodemus, and we're going to see that those who are born of blood will have to be born again. And then in chapter 4, we're going to encounter this Samaritan woman. And we're going to see that those who are born of the will of the flesh will have to learn how to worship in truth. And those who are born of the will of man will have to learn to worship in spirit. We're going to realize that our worldviews need to change in order to understand the truth of the Christian doctrine. Because you can't be a child of God purely because your parents were Christians. You can't become a child of God purely because you desire a proper relationship with God. You can't become a child of God 
purely because you're working to be a good person. The only way you can be a child of God is if you are born again through Jesus Christ. You have to be born of God, born of the Spirit. So what is a child of God? A child of God is somebody who is born of God. We read that all things were created through the Word, and the same is true with salvation. Just as God was the creator of the universe, so too he is the creator of our new birth. Apart from the divine grace of God reaching out to us and calling us to believe, and apart from the provision of Christ that made salvation possible, we would be utterly doomed. You can't work your way there, you can't desire your way there, and you can't be born there by blood. You have to be born by responding in faith to the gracious gift of God that came through Jesus Christ. And that is the only way. So what's our big takeaway from this lesson? To put it simply, I think it would be the grace of God. I think that's the main takeaway. It has to be. In fact, that's probably the big takeaway from every single lesson we ever teach. And if it's not, we should probably reteach it. The grace of God is the big takeaway from this. He sent his witness to prepare us for the word. He sent his word to save the world. The world rejected him. Yet to those who received him, he offers a gift beyond compare. And that is the essence of grace. Ben Stewart defined grace as this. It's when an unobligated giver gives to an undeserving people an unbelievable gift. That is what we have received in Christ Jesus. And this is the gospel. Because of what the word came into the world to do, and because of the witness that proclaims this good news, we have access to a restored and mended and unending relationship with God. And that is going to be what we are exploring as we work our way through this gospel. It's the good news. Yes, the light came into the world that he created, and the world by and large did not recognize him. And yes, he came to his own people, and they did not receive him. But there are those who did receive him, and I pray that that will be me and you There are those who did receive him. And to those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. Not born of blood, not born of the will of the flesh, not born of the will of man, but born of God. I pray that you will be one of those to receive him. Dear God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for your word that came into the world. Thank you so much for your word that came into the world and for the witness that brought him into the light. We pray that as we depart from here, we will not leave you in this message, but we will take you with us, both in our own hearts, but also into the world that so desperately needs you, the world that is so blind that it can't even recognize you. And I pray that our hearts will break for this world as we desire to lead them into the light and lead them back to you, Oh Lord, forgive us of our sins. Forgive us of our blindness. 
Forgive us of our rejection and our rebellion and make us new. Help us live for you. Help us long for you. Help us preach you to the nations. We love you, God. We thank you for your word. We give the rest of this day to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.